You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgbm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGBM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we are the co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week we're at KGVM headquarters speaking to you via Zoom with author and journalist Caleb Gale about his brand new book, We Refuse to Forget, A True Story of Black Creek's American Identity and Power. We are very excited to talk with Caleb today. But first, Crystal, I want to check in. It's been a while. How's your last week or two been? <laughs> well, it's been a little busy. As you well know, we, uh, we had our my son and your daughter graduate from I high school. I know. It's been very busy. Yeah. Lots of, lots of events around the actual graduation itself. Yes. yes. Yeah. So that was really wonderful. Wonderful. And, and Lawson, who graduated my son, he's my last one in high school. So um, I feel like it's kind of an end of an era um, when it he is. graduated. So And same with you. Yeah, for us yeah. both, yeah, it so is. Us yeah, both, you know, so it was really, but it was really special and it was a really nice weekend and it was just really fun to see all Lawson graduate, but all of his friends yeah. and your daughter and, and all of her friends and oh, it's just wonderful. I know. So. And Bozeman is well known for having all of those parties from family. So you get to run into all these people you maybe haven't seen in a while. So I do love that about it. Um, And how about Extreme History? Anything new with you guys there? So Extreme History, we've officially kicked off our walking tours. And uh, so walking tours are in full swing. We have some new tour guides this year and they're doing beautifully. And we've had some, a lot of people coming on the tours. So it's been even in the rain, even in the rain, you know, it always rains the whole month of June. It feels like But people come regardless, and they bring their umbrellas or their raincoats, and they trudge out on the tour in the rain. And and we always tell people, rain or shine, because, you know, if we we didn't, we wouldn't be doing any tours in June. So, So, yeah, it's been really great. But what about you, Nancy? Yeah. um, Boy, has it been rainy here, huh? And it looks looks like Ireland here. It's amazingly, beautifully green right now. The wildflowers out where I am are blooming. It's fantastic. Um, I always thought of May as being the rainy month. So, anyway, Mm. this has been long. And right as it's starting to turn to a few days of sun, I am heading back into the rain because <laughs> I'm going to actual Ireland um, where I'll meet my husband. We're there for a week and then over to see my sister and her husband and we'll travel through some of Northern Scotland. We're mm. going to go to Orkney where there's amazing archaeological sites, Scabray, yeah. and see these other ones I know I will butcher the pronunciation of. But I'm thrilled also we're going to go on the Isle of Skye and the landscape there are just as dramatic and beautiful as Montana and even more so. So I'm, I'm really Wonderful. excited, but trying to get myself out of town is always a challenge. There's a lot to, Lots to a do lot of ducks in the row. Yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> so we should probably get back to our we guests should. though. Okay. We should. Well, we are so glad to have you with us today, Caleb. Welcome. Thank you both so much. I appreciate it. So, Caleb, we're so glad to have you here. And usually we start off uh, by telling our listeners a little bit about our guest So Caleb Gale is an award-winning journalist who writes about race and identity. A professor at Northeastern University, he is a fellow at New America, Penn America, and Harvard's Radcliffe Institute of Advanced Studies. He's also a visiting scholar at New York University. Gale's writing has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, The Guardian, Guernica, and many other publications. The son of Jamaican immigrants, Gail is also a graduate of the University of Oklahoma, the University of Oxford, and holds an MBA and a master's in public policy 
both from Harvard University. He currently lives in Boston. So welcome again, Caleb. We're so happy to have you. And Caleb, as a journalist, you often write about American history or weave history into your articles, we've noticed. So what interests you and what kind of captures your imagination about history? And why do you think it's significant to understand our past to live in our present? Sure. Yeah, you know, I think it's in part for two reasons. Uh, one, because I don't think I'm nearly as good at coming up with interesting quips in the moment, right? Uh, I, I wish that I had the skills sometimes of my colleagues and, and counterparts who work on the opinion side or in breaking news. But I, I admittedly, I, I kind of suck at that, to be perfectly <laughs> honest with you. And the beauty of, of leveraging history to tell stories about who we are today is that it requires kind of steadied and prolonged moments of just meditation and consideration. Um, and on top of that, it gives me the opportunity, I think, uh, to find my place in this world in a very selfish way, right? In that I think that even in this book, we see a lot of people who are trying to fit, right? Sometimes in boxes they didn't create and in boxes they didn't ask anyone else to create for that matter. Um, but perhaps even in the margins of margins of society, these people found a way to live abundantly. And so in so doing this work, I, I too kind of gather a certain level of selfish inspiration from the characters who we interact with both in this book and then in, 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 in history at large. So I think it's because I just suck at being fastest to the punch uh, uh, unlike our opinion friends and breaking news friends, and because I think I'm obsessed and have been obsessed with how people figure out a way to fit. Mm, yeah, I love that answer. I think so many of us are hungry to kind of find our place in the world, and and so much of that involves understanding um, the people that came before us and the people that shaped the world we're living in now. Um, we're so excited to talk with you about your book because that's what you are doing in your book. By the way, I'm terrible at off-the-cuff quips also. I always think later <laughs> of what I should have said in the moment. So um, I love that kind of format that, that you also are drawn toward. Um, so your book, We Refuse to Forget, The True Story of Black Creeks, American Identity and Power. Um, your book tells the story of the Creek Nation, and it's a group uh, that did historically own slaves, but also accepted black people as full citizens um, through various means, intermarriage and other ways. And the story that you tell is through the lens of a few prominent people, and most prominently is a man named Cow Tom, who is a black Creek citizen who rose to actually become chief of the Creek Nation. Um, as well as his descendants, who were later then stripped of their Creek citizenship in the 1970s. So you discuss how this happened through an examination of racial and ethnic identity. Um, and you explicitly really challenge our preconceptions of identity and unabashedly call out white supremacy, throughout our nation's history and the marginalization that has resulted from that and continues to hamper progress, especially for black Americans today and Native Americans. Um, so we wondered if you could just start off our discussion um, by talking a little bit about the broader context for this story, which weaves both the past and the present, which is something we love, and your personal story, um, and more about um, the Creek Nation, the Trail of Tears, and why this story is kind of emblematic of larger issues in our nation today. Sure. What, what a doozy of a question. Sorry. Uh, yeah. We always start off big. It'll, it'll get easier. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. promise. So I think, I think the broader context is, is this, right? That mo most simply said, which is that the the curious thing about a bunch of people who showed up on these shores, some willingly and some unwillingly, um, and <clears throat> specifically the, the white European folks who decided to um, declare that this, for them, new nation would be theirs, created a severe amount of problems. Because in the, in, in the way were 
people who had been there much longer than these new found quote unquote Americans, recent European immigrants um, uh, could ever have imagined. Um, and with them, they oftentimes brought people who looked like me, right? Black folks. Um, and the reality is in, in this country, if we kind of continue to not understand and kind of explicate these various histories, um, those who have been marginalized and so on and so forth, then we really aren't truly telling the story of America, right? We're, we're really giving you not even a whitewash version, but a version that kind of robs a lot of people of their humanity and in kind even robs those who are who were involved in conquering this nation on behalf of their countries and countrymen, we're robbing them of their humanity as well, right? So I think this whole purpose of the book was really to, in a mainstream fashion, because historians and academics have been doing this work in this field for so very long, was to add back that dose of humanity by lifting up the stories of a lot of people. So not just the Black Creeks, not just the non-Black members of the Creek Nation, but also of some of the most heralded leaders throughout our, our history, whether it's George Washington or even the people that he appointed, like Benjamin Hawkins, to implement these plans for civilization, right? Um, again, the goal was how can we increase empire regardless of who we brought with us and who was already there and what claims they had there. So constantly, whether it was George Washington and Benjamin Hawkins implementing plans for civilization, whether it was those who first came declaring those who were already here to be savages, whether even now today in which we extricated the black people who once found home in this nation that provided them full citizenship rights at a time when the United States did not, we're, we're actively implementing this plan of civilization just in different iterations and forms, right? And so the broader context, again, of this book goes back to what I said initially, which is how can we fit, especially when the boxes that were created weren't created by me, weren't created by you, but were created by people whose real goal was to increase empire atop the lives of those who had already been here and those who were brought here. Does that help? Yeah. It's like a ruthless capitalism to me. I just feel like these... I know tendrils of this story, not the specific parts. I knew some of the parts, right, but not the specific Cow Tom story and descendants. But And I didn't really know about um, a couple of the individuals that you mentioned. But it, it's always heartbreaking every time you read a book like this and you sit with it all again because mm-hmm. everything was these increasing, ever um, heavy measures that just pushed, pushed, pushed and and lessened the opportunity for some and the humanity of some and increased it for others. And um, it's never the story that I learned growing up. And when sure. I did learn it, right, you the same. It was it's infuriating when you learn it. It's heartbreaking. And it and it um, I feel like it always makes me feel angry and upset because it helps. In some ways, it's a relief because it helps explain a lot of what's going on today, which is what you said mm-hmm. that goal is, helps you understand your own history, helps me understand my own history. Um, but it leaves us with these questions, I think, of what we should do now. So that that's just, I just think this is a lovely way that you did it where we aren't bogged down with references, but you know it's built on all of this very careful work that historians have, have done. Um, so I'm going to let Crystal ask the yeah. next question, which will be shorter. <laughs> uh, yeah, I loved how you brought all those characters into this book and, um, you know, bringing in some of those characters we know, um, like George Washington's Washington and characters we didn't know that I didn't know anyway, right. like, like Cow Tom. And so if you could just tell us a little bit more about Cow Tom and his place in this story, who he was and how his life mirrors the story that you told in this book. Sure. You know, I think that Cow Tom is a curious character because, um, you know, born sometime around 1810, um, his story for much of the historical record, both because of those who were there at that contemporary time, but then also the way in which we remember history 
his story would have been relegated perhaps to being that of a slave, right? Um, so the best way to tell the story is that Ethan Allen Hitchcock, who clearly took his name from one of his ancestors, Ethan Allen, mm-hmm. um, uh, was in what is now Oklahoma, then considered Indian territory, doing research on behalf of the U.S. government into corruption and graft. And he interacts with a Creek chief um, named Kat Yargi, who had someone named Cow Tom um, in his employ. But Ethan Allen Hitchcock, imbued with all of the um, identity making and markers that people had at that time, in which Black people, of course, were stripped of their humanity and instead seen as a means of production, almost only and exclusively um, as slaves, or at least even if they're not slaves at that point, former slaves, um, calls Cow Tom, he, he diminishes his, his worth and his value and calls him his Negro, Cat Yargi's Negro, his, his Tom, his slave. And I think the reason I mentioned that and the reason I start there is because Cow Tom tells Ethan Allen Hitchcock, look, I, I, I want a school for my children. I want a gristmill. I want land. I, I have these dreams. And it's interesting that someone who was only a slave could have these dreams in part because he ends up realizing them. He ends up having them, right? In part because Cow Tom wasn't necessarily a slave, especially according to the oral history tradition. He came from the Yamasee tribe, which was um, a portion, a, a, a tribe within the Creek Nation and came over to the Indian territory during Indian removal, during the Trail of Tears. And even more, he was an interpreter and served as an interpreter for Kat Yargi. And interpreters often were jobs that did go to a lot of Black people, some who were enslaved, some who were never slaves. And in part because they served as cultural brokers between, between the you know, ever-growing empire that was the United States government and the Creek Nation. And so Kyle Tom was able to make quite the living doing so, and he eventually rose to become chief within the nation. Um, and at one of the most critical times during the Civil War, and as we think, you know, usually the Civil War, this is how I was taught. I was actually taught in a school where the Civil War was supposedly not even fought over slavery. Oh, gosh, I know, right? Thought that the Civil Jeez. War was yeah. the War of Northern Aggression uh, in Oklahoma. That's how I was taught. Wow. <laughs> It wasn't just the collection of the states at that point that were fighting with one another, the North and the South. That war, that those battles bled over into, into Indian territory. So at a time when not just the United States was in chaos, but the Creek Nation was also in chaos, spread out and sparsed out uh, throughout that portion of the country, Cow Tom rose to leadership. And most importantly, he became chief. And then after the, the Civil War, was sent on behalf of the Creek Nation, a black man who Ethan Allen Hitchcock relegated to being just a slave, was sent with Harry Island and a collection of other black and mem- black and non-black members of the Creek Nation to negotiate a peace treaty on behalf of the Creek Nation with the U.S. government. And two particular clauses emancipated all the blacks who were once enslaved, but then also provided those very same black folks full citizenship rights within the Creek Nation. And of course, the story of Black people in the Creek Nation goes back much longer than Cow Tom, much longer than the Civil War. But this was a catalytic moment in which opportunity was granted for them in a way that wasn't being granted in the U.S., such that even Cow Tom's family, Cow Tom, that guy who Ethan Allen Hitchcock called his Negro in a dismissive fashion, was able to achieve that that dream that he wanted, the school for his kids, the land that he wanted, his grandchildren and great-grandchildren <clears throat> became exorbitantly wealthy and prosperous, influential and powerful people. Um, and so Cal Tom's story is, is one of, again, trying to belong, um, even if it meant living abundantly on the margins of society. Um, but that's that's Cal Tom. That's, that's kind of the narrative around which I found much of my fascination for this book. I'm just blown away by this human being. Um, And it was such a pleasure to read a book where he was really figured prominently. Um, Like you say, when you say the story about his dreams that were recorded, even though he was dismissed, you know, somebody who dreams about having a school for their children. I mean, that's somebody who wants 
a place and a better life and a place for their, I mean, that's somebody who does not conceive of themselves as a person with no agency, a person without. So it, I mean, it does seem to me to speak to this idea that he was definitely not just a slave, you know, and the fact that he served as an interpreter, I feel like those are the people who are, you are sitting with people of power all the time and you know, and understand and careful negotiations. You have to be somebody who is so savvy, empathetic, understanding to communicate and to be careful and just to understand how to interact with people of power. And you're watching negotiations happen. You're learning all of that. You probably have to be good at it yourself in order to make people understood to each other. Um, for, for me, like it just blew me away to, to have, these are the people who are not included in history who end up being like so important in what actually gets written down and negotiated. So it's such a, it's been such a pleasure to, to read that story. And I just wanted to reiterate those things because he was 35 when he was on the trail of tears and he survived it. And then he's in his fifties in the civil war. So here he is still accomplishing things as he's becoming older in life and realizing his dream. I mean, just an amazing, um, human being. So I wanted to say that before we move on. Um, but the civil war is something that plays a prominent role in, in your narrative all the way through in various, um, fashions. And and you mentioned in your book that there are 8,000 native American people who participated in some way in the civil war and on both sides, both on the Confederate side and the union side. And, um, over half of those folks actually died during the Civil War, too. So tell us a little bit more about how and why the Creek Nation itself was divided during the war. Um, And at this point, we're talking about the Creek Nation who has been forced, removed, and is now in Oklahoma when the Civil War breaks out. Sure. And and there are probably historians who will articulate this far better than I will. But to to do so as simply as possible... um, for for many decades before the Creek Nation, like a lot of others, um, found themselves trying to carefully toe a line of neutrality, right? Um, before um, a victor had been declared between the British, French, Spanish, and, and the Brit and and the soon to be Americans, right? Um, in the wars before the French and Indian War, et cetera, et cetera, right? A lot of times the Creek Nation and other nations would try to take a posture of neutrality because who knew who was going to win? Who knew who was going to emerge as victor? But when power was starting to consolidate after it was clear that the British had been thrown off, the Americans had emerged, that they were going to try to do their best to consolidate and federalize power and authority, and that standing in the way of this ever-growing country would be these folks, these members of this nation who were here before America was America, um, you know, it became clear that side picking would not be as easy as possible. Then introduced to ourselves the Civil War, right, where, yes, there were some members of the Creek Nation, like the Lower Creeks, who had more so intermixed with members of the white American society had adopted many more customs and explicitly slavery and forms of slavery like chattel slavery. Um, but also there was, there was side picking who, who would emerge as the victor because what we, what we did as a country is as a government is that we situated people in the unenviable position to identify paths of survival right. for mm-hmm. which they didn't ask to be placed at those crossroads, but they were, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so to me, it's really a sad commentary of the dangers of like unchecked white supremacy that we saw in our U.S. government during, before, during, and after the Civil War, where we forced people who had found a way to be, even despite all of the pain that the United States government had caused these groups of people, we then forced, we foisted upon them the added duty of then trying to figure out how to belong and for your reward, the spoil for you, you doing that was potentially survival, mm-hmm. right? Potentially the opportunity to continue to exist, a fight you did not want to be in, a fight that didn't necessarily involve you, a fight that 
crept into your area, which was then called Indian Territory, now considered Oklahoma, right? Like you, you didn't ask for it, but it sat there right at your front door. Many of them conscripted into this service on either side. So yeah, I, it, it is true that there were definitely members of like the Lower Creeks who chose to side with the Confederacy and the majority of Upper Creeks deciding not to do that. But the reality is, is that when you're faced with survival, right, which is hard to really kind of consider when you're faced with not just you, your personal life, but your tradition, your history, your ancestral homes, all of it is up for the offing. What do you then do, right? It's a painful commentary mm-hmm. that's often shrouded from view because, again, in, I mean, in my school, again, we were Northern aggression. That's what the Civil War was. It wasn't about slavery. It was about state rights and individuality. Um, so you mm-hmm. can imagine that I definitely didn't hear this history, even though I grew up where a lot of this happened, right there, dead center in the middle of Indian Territory in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Like, I yeah. grew up in the middle of it yeah. and never, not once, Heard that not Ca- Caleb. I didn't even know y'all down there um, were not hearing <laughs> that. So, like growing up in the north, I didn't know that there was a huge swath of the country that wasn't even learning about the Civil War. I mean, I didn't learn the full history. I feel like of this country and everything, but at least I didn't l- learn that. It you wasn't know? presented to you in that way, <laughs> right? And I don't yeah, know for you out here yeah. out west, Crystal, yeah. but it's it's definitely. I just feel like, as you said, it's such a, a difficult thing for you see that earlier battle that the Creeks have when they're still in the Georgia Alabama area, where someone retain that lifestyle of of hunting that's been this whole thing hunting and then women doing planting and that there's a battle between and the u.s intervenes and then that same divide again it's like which way are we going to be able to survive do we hold on to what we've done or what we know do we work with these new people who just keep encroaching um and it's an impossible choice Mm -hmm. and all of the tribes out west we know those histories it's it's the same and it creates internal factions um among groups of people because it's impossible choices right that's that's why really quickly you know Angie DeVoe the famed historian um who really did a lot of the groundbreaking work very early on um you know called it a road to disappearance that's how she described Creek history right Right. that they were we were they were they were placed on a quick slide towards disappearance and they had the choice do you participate in trying to slow your pace down this road to disappearance or do you abjectly refuse and disappear immediately? Right. Which one do you choose? Right. 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 So, yeah. Yeah. You are listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts. We are speaking today with author and journalist Caleb Gale about his new book, We Refuse to Forget, A True Story of Black Creek's American Identity and Power. So after the Civil War, of course, things didn't get any easier with the codification of white supremacy in the South through black codes, Jim Crow, all those things that we know about. Life was still not easy for indigenous and black people living in this territory, in this Indian territory that we now call Oklahoma. They had to continue to fight for their land and their way of life. So Caleb, can you speak a little to this time period through the lens of of Cow Tom, because I think that's really interesting where he was at. And Nancy, you talked a little bit about this before in his roles. But, um, you know, this is a really important time for Cow Tom because this is where he really establishes an identity. And this identity is what he leaves for his family. And so as you, you say this very eloquently in your book, you say, quote, a sacred certainty of who they are so they could forever define themselves apart from that white people or any people had to say about it, end quote. So if you could just speak a little bit more to that, Caleb, that would be wonderful. You're talking about the the time after, as the Civil War was concluding and and the Creek Nation was entering into negotiations with the U.S. government as to what it was. Yeah, so look, I mean, I think the reality was is that because even though the Creek Nation wasn't entirely in favor of the Confederacy, there were there were members of the nation who had aligned themselves. And as such, because the Union won, they did this to a lot of Native American nations who sided with 
the losers, essentially. I mean, I'm trying to, I would love to make this uh, beautifully articulated, but I think perhaps speaking plainly might be the best way to go about it. That's always the best way, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So essentially, you know, they did exact punishment, which they probably would have exacted anyway, right? Which was to renegotiate, to essentially say, look, we understood that we had some treaties with you before, that we said, this is all yours. We need to come back to the table to have a conversation. And by conversation, we're going to essentially tell you what the express will and interests of the U.S. government shall be, right? And so one of the people who was set to kind of engage in that negotiation was Kyle Tom and his you know, partner in crime, Harry Island, who was then at that point the chief interpreter for the nation. But look, I think the reality is, is that the, it was in this moment that I would say an identity that was not new wasn't so much forged, but formalized, right? Mm. Um, in that all of a sudden, I think it's important to remember that already in the Creek Nation, slavery, the badge of slavery in any way was in no way hereditary like it was in the U.S., right? So even coming out of the Civil War, Black people were almost uniformly kind of understood to be freedmen, right? Which was a badge of slavery. And there were freedmen bureaus, you know, everywhere that were supposed to be, they were deputized to kind of figure out how do we make restitution. Of course, we're going to skip past all the history with Andrew Johnson and, and his near impeachment, his near, his near expulsion from office and all that jazz. We're going to skip that part. But all that to say that in the U.S., it was still very much an open question. What were we going to do with all of these people who we yesterday called slave and now today have to call freedmen. So we're not gonna fully let them slide into becoming fully who they all can be. We're going to still slap them with the notion of freedmen. Whereas in the Creek Nation, the opportunity set was completely different, right? Because you became a citizen, whether you had been, enslaved or not. And I think that's what I mean by it became formalized. It became written down on paper that these folks, Black people who were once slaves, were slave no longer. They they lost the vestiges of anything slave-related. And that's in part because in the Creek Nation, you, you weren't necessarily property. You weren't necessarily relegated to just being a means of production. You, in fact, if I was a slave, my children didn't have to be slaves automatically, period. If I was a slave and I married a Creek woman, then I was no longer a slave. I had nothing about my history. My, my slave identity had been purged. It had been expunged. Whereas in the United States, it has stayed, right? You can, to some extent, kind of think about it in that it, it limits the ways in which we kind of become American, at least for me, right? Because I can distinctly recall, like I write in the book, as a kid sitting in that same not-so-great school being told by teachers that, well, you shouldn't really benefit from diversity outreach programs or affirmative action because your people aren't really slaves. In fact, I had a different badge. I had an immigrant badge. So all of a sudden, um, we became the, the, the window through which I could become African-American became that much smaller. But what I, the reason I focus on Kowtown, the reason I focus on the Black Creeks is because it forces a much more expansive, history-informed way of constructing identity in a way that's more responsive to who you are, what you've been through, so that you might actually imagine who you might become. Yeah. Um, well said. And it gets even more complicated um, further into the 1870s and after when all... Native American groups, tribes, those who who held land in common, um, were affected by the Dawes and Curtis Acts, and I'm most familiar with the Dawes Act. So in the late 19th century, these acts dramatically changed the landscapes for Native Americans and especially any um, African Americans, any black people that were within those tribes or settled there. Um, So... I mean, these acts were designed, I think, to really um, push again that notion you talk about early in the book of if we force the idea of privatization, individuality, smash this idea of 
collectivism and and kinship based and other ways of organizing groups of people that the Cree and other tribes had that, and and then to um, force on it this system where they no longer then have an identity that's separate they have to make it on their own as any old citizen of the United States even though you know their starting line is pushed so far back so let me turn it to you and ask um, just for our listeners talk briefly about the Dawes Act um, about Dawes himself and his ideas then about assimilation, assimilation which is really an, um, it's a racist idea in the way that he conceives of it and imposes it um, on these groups of people. His ideas then that extend to redefining Indian lands and the consequences that has um, on the identity and every aspect of economic life you know, that it has on those people. Sure. So Senator Henry Dawes from the great state of Massachusetts, um, you know, on the second day of the 1886 Lake Mohonk Conference, which at that point was like an annual kind of palaver between, you know, wealthy white elites. um, And they came there to discuss you know, Indian affairs. I mean, you can kind of think about it as like a modern day, like, I don't know, Aspen Institute or a Bilderberg Conference or something of that nature. Um, and Dawes was delivering a speech in which he said, when that time comes, and I'm going to paraphrase just for, just to hopefully remember, I, I think I committed this memory. When that time comes, there can be no reservation to abolish or to perpetuate, no Indian agent to appoint or dismiss, no treaty to keep or abrogate, The work is accomplished when the Indian, as he said, has become one of us, absorbed into the body politics, a self-supporting citizen, and nothing is left of these questions that are troubling us. So there are a few things that I think are important to remember there that we then see kind of become the outworking of the Dawes Act, the Curtis Act, and the Dawes Commission, which is that first, it was a trouble. It was still a problem, right, Um, for them, right? The Indian problem, so-called Indian problem remained. Right. And also they were just coming off not too many decades removed from solving the black people problem in his mind. Right. Uh, And so now how about we pivot to the in his mind, the Indian. So with that in mind, it was still a problem to be dealt with. In fact, he was there to, quote unquote, help. Right. And I think oftentimes the most pernicious and also the most dangerous form of interaction historically between the U.S. government and the people who were here first was the decision of the United States government to help when no one asked them to, right? And so Henry Dawes, um, Senator Dawes, creates this, you know, is empowered through the Dawes to create this commission that is supposed to engage in that assimilation, almost to carry forward the work of civilization that people like Washington and Hawkins had started almost over a century before to kind of carry that forward. And in so doing, uh, trying to do, as Andrew DeBow once said, provide the perilous gift of American citizenship to these folks. So what he did is that you all of a sudden then had to identify in his mind who was Creek and who was not. Mm -hmm. And then who is Cherokee and who is not and on down the list. And when that, when they did that, it meant oftentimes they were taking shoddy kinship records and genealogical records and trying to assemble, assemble who would be who and, but also eyeballing people to identify who would be who, right? Who are you too black to be a full blood Creek starting to introduce the notion of blood quantum, this, nearly fictitious scientific approach, right? this faux scientific approach to determining who is who. It wasn't done because they drew blood. They did it because they assumed, well, you look like this, so you'll pass. And you look like this, you won't. So you're going to be a Creek Freedman, right? So someone who was perhaps, whose skin hued too dark would then all of a sudden become a Creek Freedman. A division that really, again, as we just talked about, wasn't germane to the operations and customs of the Creek Nation, but very much the practice of the U.S. government, right? That allotment of land, all it really did was make room for a bunch of white settlers who were already interested in Indian territory. 
it drastically reduced the size of those folks because then they apportioned land individually to each person and each family, right? And of course, that was also antithetical, as you just mentioned, because the notion of communalism, the communitarian approach to governance did not busy itself with identifying who could be who. And all of a sudden, you created even greater scarcity on who could be Creek, not just who could be American. And all of a sudden, you, 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 you created a category, again, another box that none of those folks asked you to create that still has impact on us even today, right? Mm-hmm. Because anyone on that Creek Freedman role any single person on that Creek Freedman role in 1979, when they changed the constitution, I'm not trying to get ahead of myself. When they changed the constitution in 1979, it essentially made it such that anyone who's on the Creek Freedman role all of a sudden became too black to be Creek because anyone on that Creek Freedman role could no longer qualify for citizenship, inclusive of even Cow Tom's descendants. Cow Tom, the very person who once in a time of crisis rose to leadership as chief, as an interpreter, as a negotiator, his descendants, his very descendants, because they're on the freedman role, cannot access the very nation he fought for to help preserve. I know the craziness. It is, you know, and, and that is why history is so important because it has consequences today. And that, though, these consequences you lay out beautifully in your book for Cow Tom's descendants. And so, you know, you talk to some of those descendants who are living today and, you know, you talk to them in the book um, and you explain their, that situation with the 1979 constitution that was rewritten. And, and maybe you could just talk a little bit more about Johnny May and that, um, and that family who are living descendants of Cow Tom and, and what they are fighting for currently. Sure, yeah. So look, I mean, I, when I went to her, when I went to Johnny May's house, not giving you, giving you all the book, um, yeah. <laughs> the, the chapter is called Johnny May Stopped Getting Mail, right? Um, which probably conveys better than anything else, the experience that we, we, that, that she has had, right? Because the way in which we say connected to the nation was through mailings and notifications about elections coming up and et cetera, et cetera. The happenings of the nation all of a sudden ceased after 1979. Um, I think what's interesting about the descendants is that, you know, you do have someone like Demario Solomon Simmons, who's on the front lines actively, you know, who has who has been the attorney on behalf of those people who have been designated as Creek Freedmen and of course have lost their citizenship. He's been on the front lines as an attorney fighting to get folks back in, right? Um, there is a hope that lingers in part because, you know, Damara Salman Simmons, who's a direct descendant of Kowtong, um, can look to the Cherokee Nation and Maryland Van, right? Maryland Van like Damara could tell a very ornate and intricate history about her ancestry in the Creek Cherokee Nation. And they fought in the very same courts that the Creek Nation is, that the descendants of Black folks in the Creek Nation have fought in, and she won. And she's now on one of the larger councils of the Cherokee Nation, is really leading an effort in a time where we're actively trying to ban talk of history about Black people is leading a real charge to kind of inject a greater dunamis, a greater, a greater impulse to, to, to kind of make sure that they systematize the relearning of history that has often been ignored. So what are they doing now? A lot of them are, are trying to keep the drumbeat going, keep these memories alive, because in a time like this, remembering is radical, right? Mm-hmm. The, the exactly. choice to just remember, the choice to have said, I used to get mail, I don't get mail anymore, is just as potent and as powerful as filing a legal suit. I think oftentimes for a lot of Americans, especially those of us who recognize the bad that's been done and the decision to try and repair for those damages done, we oftentimes feel as if we're up against it. But I hope that they take heart in hearing about the story of someone like Johnny May who just said, look, I just don't get mail anymore. Mm-hmm. That perhaps that, that is your form of protest doesn't necessarily have to be in front of a camera. It doesn't necessarily have to be on CNN. It can oftentimes just be 
the decision to not forget that which you have uh, that that which you have kind of built your life upon and for johnny may it was that she no longer got mail wow yeah um caleb ultimately this this is a story about identity um you weave your own your own through this um and how identities have been created and changed to better facilitate white supremacy um, as we like to say at Extreme History, um, history isn't pretty, and we're okay with that. <laughs> we talk about it anyway, um, but it's good to acknowledge. And your book is a testament to that, speaking to some of the, the uglier sides of American history. Um, but if we know the difficult history, it gives us an opportunity to move forward in a different and often better way. In your last chapter, you really address that, and you, you say, I'm going to read out a, a short quote here and then ask you about it. You say in the last chapter, I'm asking you not to give up on your vision of America. I'm asking you to make America even more beautiful, to actively paint a bigger picture, a richer one that encompasses all the things we've been and all the ways we've been so that we might realize all we can become. So... Talk a little bit about that quote and why you chose to put that in the last chapter after telling the story. Yeah. Um, I think one, the quote's there because I believe it. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that um, it's interesting is usually the tradition of journalism is such that you don't inject yourself, nor do you um, reflect on what impact the story has had on you. But I felt like I owed it to the reader, um, especially because a lot of this history isn't known by the mainstream public, right? Mm -hmm. um, to provide a bit of an easier pathway to understanding it by understanding someone who they could probably understand is just not fitting in for a lot of obvious reasons, right? Like big old black guy in Oklahoma, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, who, who, you know, would bring Jamaican dishes in as leftovers to lunches and kids would go, ooh, what's that, right? I think by <laughs> hopefully providing something that's a little bit more accessible, I can also grant them even greater access to understanding kind of the, the, the abundant living that people did on the margins, not just the devastation. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's that abundant living that, I was able to kind of witness in archives and on the pages that I wrote that led me to truly believe that America can be more beautiful than we're making it. And the beauty does not come in straight lines. It comes in curved and jagged ones. It comes in, you know, bedazzles and speckles and contrasting colors and all of that. That that's That's kind of the America that I choose to believe in. I, I think also it's because I don't, I don't think that the words written by men who made their living, whose full-time job it was to enslave people, I don't think that those words are theirs, right? So I'm actually, I'm actually asking the reader to engage in a bit of reclamation, to take back from those who probably didn't see me as equal, who did not see me as equal, um, and to repurpose them for our uses of creating a more expansive and inclusive America, one in which you can belong, one in which belonging isn't obstructed by the ignoring of history, but perhaps the wholehearted embrace of it. So that that's why and that's how I came to that that phrasing at the end. Yeah. And I love how you put yourself into this book and how you really spoke to it from your own viewpoint and your own perspective. It was wonderful. And another thing I wanted to say is that, um, so we had um, historically here in Bozeman, Montana, a, a man who came here from Indian Territory. His name was John Anderson. And he, in his recording of his life, he said he was Cherokee and he was african-american he was black and now i have a better understanding after reading your book i have a a, a much better understanding of his life and mm. i know he was fully black and i know he was fully cherokee 
And he was saying that in his documents. But of course, when we've interpreted his life here in Bozeman, we've said he was part Cherokee and part black. Mm-hmm. I will not say that any longer. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually fought for the Union. He, he, he was a, an enslaved man um, on a plantation in Indian Territory. And he escaped and went and fought for the Union. And then after the war, he came west, as many did, um, mm-hmm. and ended up in Bozeman. And he lived um, the majority of his life then here in Bozeman. And at the very end of his life, he and his wife, Julia, um, who also grew up enslaved, um, but they met here and married here in Bozeman. Uh, mm-hmm. They went, because he had fought in the Civil War, they went to a um, veteran's home in California, and they are both buried there in California. And so um, my husband is from that part of California, so we went to visit their graves a couple summers ago, and we left flowers. My kids left flowers on his graves. But um, I have a complete... Um, different understanding of his life after reading this book. So thanks for that. And we will interpret it differently from now on when we, we talk about him here in Bozeman. Well, thank you. That means, that means the world to me. And I, I have to come to Bozeman at some point. You do. You do. It, it's you a have great to look place. at that. Yeah. 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 It's, um, it's astonishing to me then because you start to realize how many more people there were like that. But again, sort of like I said about Kautam earlier, I'm always amazed at the the bravery and the humanity and the agency these people found to create this life, even when there were all these circumstances around them that weren't designed to help them, you know, do that. Mm-hmm. And the resilience is astonishing. Um, so Caleb, thank you for the, writing the book. Thank you for taking the time to discuss it with us. Sadly, we've run out of time. Um, but we want to remind our listeners, um, We Refuse to Forget is the title, and it's an important as well as um, really powerful and enjoyable read. It's not a super thick, heavy book, in case anyone's worried about yeah. <laughs> length. It's just the it's, right length. Yes, it's um, perfect. Yeah, and um, we encourage everyone out there to find a copy. Um, and thank you for joining us, Caleb. Thank you for um, allowing us to have the opportunity to help get this story a little farther out into the world. I really appreciate you all for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Caleb. And thanks to all our listeners out there for joining us today. If you love this podcast, please tell a friend and make sure to subscribe so it shows up in your podcast feed each week. And if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we would love that. So thanks so much for listening today. And we hope you can join us again to find out more about The the Dirt dirt on on the the past. Past. A big thank you to our editor and sound guru, Steve Durbin. Thanks to Lawson Alegria for mixing the music and to John Chadwell for help getting this podcast out into the world. 